Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Let me also remind you next week, uh, our service is going to look a little different. I really encourage you, especially if you're part of KBC, if KBC is your home, your, your church family, let me encourage you to be here next week because our service is going to include uh, um, a pretty significant informational um, section where we want to update you, the elders want to update you on a lot of what we've been talking about these past months. As I've gotten acclimated, as we've been, we've been trying to reassess and, and take into consideration the, the, the introspection period we went through as a church and what that's going to look like as we, we put that into effect, um, where we're going in, in the days ahead. So let me just encourage you, if KBC is your home, Try and be here next week. And then after that, we're going to follow it up with just a good old-fashioned potluck. So if you can bring a meal for that, I'll send out an email later this week um, as a reminder. But we'd like to just spend some time uh, fellowshipping with one another, um, taking advantage of what we hope to be great weather, and the kids can run around, and it'll be a great time. Well, if you haven't been around, uh, we're in the middle, we're actually towards the end now of our series on the Gospel of John, a series that we've entitled, Jesus Changes Everything. And in many ways, we've reached the climax of that series because we've reached that moment, the hour on which Jesus does what he set out to do, when he changes everything, when he changes it on the cross. Jesus has already been arrested without a cause. He's been interrogated without due process and sentenced to his death without due justice. And in our passage today, that, that sentence is going to be carried out, but we'll find, we'll find that the cross is so much more. As we pick up the story in John 19. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there again to John 19, where we're going to begin in verse 17. And we'll begin by reading it, verse 17, and I'm going to read all the way to the end of the chapter. Let me do that. This is God's word. It says, So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. 
This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a a hyssop branch and, and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen clothes with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would ignite an affection in us for yourself. For those of us who are already in love, I pray that that would be fanned into a flame hotter than it's ever been before. I pray as we even look at this text, and not only this text, but through it, look back on all of what you've said before that was fulfilled in Jesus, I pray we would see him for who he is and what he's done on our behalf. I pray that we would see that Jesus changes everything, that he changes death itself. I pray we'd see it 
for his glory and for our good. In his powerful name, amen. Ever wonder why so many Disney classics begin with death? Not too long ago, we were watching again for what seemed like the thousandth time, The Lion King, which is actually a very long movie. And we got to the part where Mufasa rushes headlong into a stampede to save Simba. But in the process, it costs him his life. And it's not really the conversation that we were looking for during family movie night. But think of Nemo. We wouldn't have fared much better because for these little clownfish, it all begins when a barracuda attacks. Or Bambi, who one minute is just learning to walk and grazing with his mom, and the next, Ken shows up with a shotgun and he's in the thicket all alone. But it's not just these. You can go down the list. Elsa and Anna are left orphaned after a shipwreck and frozen. Tarzan's parents are killed by a leopard. Mowgli has no one in the Jungle Book. And even Quasimodo can't start his sad life as the hunchback of Notre Dame before first losing his mother. So why do so many of Disney's celebrations of life begin with death? Well, perhaps the simplest answer is found in The Lion King itself, that, that the death of one generation makes way for another. That Simba can only rise as the Lion King if, as sad as it is, Mufasa first falls. And that death is just a part of Elton John's circle of life. And there's some satisfaction in that. That, that through death, life subsists. That, that God, in his grace, has allowed death in order to preserve life, whether in his restraint of a disease or, or even insofar as the Hitlers of this world aren't allowed to live forever. They cannot do their full destruction because they're mortal as well. That with the, the passing of one generation, another rises with renewed vigor and renewed vitality. But I want to suggest today that the satisfaction of a circle from death to life and back again only goes so far. That it's no good when it comes to ultimate satisfaction. Because sooner or later you have to recognize that in a circle, death and life are still caught in a deadlock. And so it's as Tolstoy once wrote, today or tomorrow, sickness and death will come. They already had come to those I love or, or to me. Nothing will remain but stench and worms. Sooner or later, my affairs, whatever they may be, will be forgotten and I shall not exist. Then why go on making any effort, he asks. How can man fail to see this? And how go on living, he says, 
One can only live while one is intoxicated with life. As soon as one is sober, it is impossible not to see that it is all a mere fraud. My question, he says, is the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man from the foolish child to the wisest elders. Is there anything, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? No. No, Mr. Tolstoy. If the circle of life is all there is. If that's all there is, then then life isn't actually worth living. Unless this circle will be broken, is broken, has been broken once and for all. That the place of death in God's good grace has actually become the place of life. And in this passage today, I think we're going to see just that. That the place of death became the place of life as Jesus reigned as king, suffered as a servant, and died as the giver of life. We're told in verse 17 that Jesus, after Pilate's judgment, is finally handed over to the Jews to to be crucified. Taken from Gabbatha, the, the place of judgment, to Golgotha, the place of the skull the place of death, but, but that he went there bearing his own cross because the picture is of Jesus fully in control. Now, typically on their way to crucifixion, one would have had to have been driven there or, or, or drawn there or dragged there because knowing the horrors of what was ahead, you would lose yourself psychologically on the way to the cross. But not Jesus. Not Jesus, broken and bloodied as he already is. He goes fully aware and what's, of what's coming and fully in control. And he goes to the place of death and is crucified between two criminals, it says, to die among those who deserved to die, even though he didn't deserve death himself. And that's the picture. But he's more than just an innocent victim. Dying in the place of death, he's first the one who reigns there as king. Let's look at this then, how he reigns there as king. He's proclaimed that by Pilate as one last jab at the Jews. If you didn't pick up last week this relationship between the prefect of Judea and the Jewish religious leaders was strained, to say the least. It's like so many political relationships, whether that's with Trump or Obama before him. It never seems to be going as well as it could. So Pilate, as one last jab at the Jews, has this plaque written out that reads in verse 19, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And, and they don't like this, so they actually try to get him to change it, to say not, this is the king of the Jews, but something like this man said, I am the king of the Jews, yet, yet with scriptural authority. And that's what you got to see. With scriptural authority, Pilate says, what I have written, I 
have written. And it's important, the language that he uses, the language that John picks up on here. Because in John, no one ever writes except the writers of Scripture. Ever noticed that before? The whole gospel, it's happened more than in any other gospel. John refers to writing and the process of writing and the product of writing more than any other writer, other any other gospel writer. But he does so exclusively with reference to the writing of Scripture. And now you get to Pilate. And when he picks up the pen, the picture that's supposed to be in the back of your mind is that he's picking up a pen, carrying out not only the decrees of God, but now making the proclamation of God. What I have written, I have written. With scriptural authority. It's very interesting. He reserves That language, John reserves that language, the language of writing exclusively for the writers of Scripture. And so in his jab at the Jews, it's more than just that. Because remember, Pilate is not in control. Jesus is. And his Father who works through him. Before the judgment seat, Jesus had said just that, that you, Pilate, would have no authority unless it had been given you from heaven, if unless it had been given you from above. And here it becomes clear that that authority was not only to carry out God's purposes, but to, to explain their divine significance. That here reigns the king of the Jews, the king of God's people, and, and so the king of all people. Because the inscription is written in Aramaic. The language of that people and their religion. In Latin, the language of the empire and their Caesar. And in Greek, the language of the known world and all its wisdom. As one author put it, this inscription announces the universal condemnation of those who condemned Jesus. He was the king and the universal offer of salvation to those universally condemned. Because he is the king. So the next time you realize that you're in need of a, of a superhero, don't go looking around Gotham as if it's going to arise, as if one's going to arise from among us. But neither do you have to look to Krypton as if he's going to come from outside of us and not suffer along with us. The next time you're in need, you realize your need, look to the cross where the one who didn't deserve death nonetheless died for all of us and so proved he has the right and is the only one who has the right and the only one who can reign over us. The place of death becomes the place of life as Jesus reigns as a king. The king, but, but he's even more the one who does so as the servant who suffers. Pilate's scriptural authority here is, is subsumed now under an onslaught of Old Testament quotations. 
And they move now away from just, just any, any king to, to the suffering servant of God. Because Jesus isn't just any king, but the king that all the Bible was looking forward to. A, a king who, who, like David before him, would ascend his throne through suffering. Do you remember the story, the trials on his way to his own throne? Even more so Christ. And this is the point John makes with both his description of the soldiers gambling for Jesus' clothes as well as with his description of Jesus' request for something to drink. Now with the soldiers, we're told that they divided Jesus' outer garments among themselves. But when it came to Jesus' tunic, his inner garment, uh, there was something very special about it. It wasn't typical in the ancient world, but we're told that it was seamless, woven in one piece. And to anyone familiar with the Old Testament, this would have immediately called to mind the clothing of the priests. In all the Bible, that's the only other fabric, that and the veil of the temple ever described as being woven. The words only used here in the New Testament, only used elsewhere in Exodus, talking about the clothing of the priests. But the point here is that because it was a single piece of fabric, and not one you could presumably pull apart at the seams. Rather than cut it up, the soldiers make a game of it. Start throwing dice for it. And we're told this fulfills a statement made in Psalm 22. Now, if you want to turn there, you can. Psalm 22, this is a significant piece of this, this part of the passage. This is, a, 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 again, a fulfills a statement made in Psalm 22 found in verse 18. Again, written by David about a thousand years before Christ, who says, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Jesus, a, a thousand years later, fulfills that statement. But not because it was a straight up prediction. We need to sort of break away from that in our mind. We often want to think that way. No, David was talking about himself, right? He was writing about himself. Jesus fulfills this in, in the sense that, that he fills it up. It means more than it might have meant. And yet a strong case can be made that the reference to Jesus' thirst-fulfilling Scripture is also a reference to a piece of this, Psalm 22. That's found in John 19, 28, just a, a little bit further on. But in Psalm 22, David says in verse 14, right? If you're just looking at that, he says in verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shard. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. So Jesus says, I thirst. Interesting, right? Pulled from the same psalm. So Jesus is saying, what? Well, look first between these two statements. What's said between them? Verse 14 and 18. So it's remarkable. Look. It says, For dogs encompass me. 
Maybe the soldiers. Maybe we're meant to see in this the Jews. It says, a company of evildoers encircles me. At least two, right? Criminals, that is, crucified on either side of him. And they have dug holes in or pierced my hands and my feet. So Jesus is saying, you know the guy who used to be king? You remember David who ascended the throne through suffering? And how we've been waiting for one of his sons to ascend that throne again? Well, I'm it. And in the beauty of the Father's plan, I not only ascend the throne through suffering as well, my throne is the embodiment of suffering itself. I fill it up. The picture meant more than even David could have understood. Because there, the place of death becomes a place of life. The picture is Psalm 22 through and through. Could you imagine Jesus hanging on the cross and this is what he's meditating on? This is what he's doing. This is what he's speaking out of and directing the entire scene. And yet the point is not that Jesus dies as one deserted by God, as often is thought, but rather that he suffers as the servant of God. Because as much as he suffers, he suffers according to God's eternal purpose as a fulfillment of God's eternal word. And there, even in Psalm 22, suffering doesn't have the final word. I want you to notice this because we often, I think, make a misstep. We judge from other gospels which have a quote also from Psalm 22. Do you know what it is? As Jesus' last words, they read um, Jesus saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? You remember the saying. It's the, it's the last words recorded of Jesus in Matthew and Mark. It's the opening words of Psalm 22. And yet we think from that, that that Jesus somehow on the cross was broken in his relationship with the Father. We think that there his relationship with the Father was ruptured. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Because quoting the beginning of the psalm, he's pointing towards the end. Which isn't a cry of dereliction, but is a declaration of the triumph yet to come. The end of the psalm, when, when, when David is speaking, is not, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's yet, I will trust in you, and you will show yourself to the world. And so it's not what we often take it to be. So John avoids the statement completely. Never saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not because it wasn't a historical fact but because he wants to avoid a theological fiction. And the reason is for John that at the cross, it's actually the place not where relationship is ruptured, but where relationship is restored. And that's why in between Jesus' clothes being gambled for 
And then at the end, him saying, I thirst. That's why in between is sandwiched this exchange with his beloved disciple and his mother. Because at the cross, we become Jesus' brothers. We become Jesus' sisters. Because there was no time that the Father and the Son were not working so in tandem than in that moment. The place of death becomes a place of life as Jesus suffers as a servant. So if you're here today and your relationships are strained with your wife or your husband or your parents or your kids, with the person sitting next to you or across from you or on the other side of the gym, you got to know that the only hope for those relationships being made whole is in the cross. That's where it's got to begin. But also that there's an expectation that that's precisely what will happen. This is what happens under the cross. Relationships don't break apart further. They come closer together. And we not only become brothers with Jesus, we take responsibility for those Jesus cares about. Because we're family now. And the blood of Jesus runs thicker than whatever blood runs through us. Place of death becomes a place of life as Jesus reigns as a king, suffers as a servant, and then finally as he dies as the giver of life. And here I just want to point out how much pain the author goes through to to emphasize that while crucified, Jesus' bones are not broken. It's kind of an odd side note, except if God is writing the story. Because this really serves two purposes. It first fulfills what was said about the Passover lamb in Exodus 12. They, they weren't to be harvested, these Passover lambs, after, after they were sacrificed. They weren't to be harvested like other animals, using the skin for clothing or the bones for utensils or such. Because they were holy to the Lord. This was the animal that died in the people's place. If you remember the story, when when death passed over God's people, it was the substitute sacrifice, a substitute that looked forward to Jesus. And as such, it wasn't theirs to do with what they wanted. It was God's. And here, even crucified by men, who's calling the shots? God is. And God's Son So his bones aren't broken. But secondly, Jesus' bones are not broken in order that a soldier would pierce his side. Most likely piercing the heart or maybe with it the lung so that because of the asphyxiation that Jesus died from, through the wound together, blood and water flow. And the symbolism is significant. Blood to give life and water 
that washes clean. This is of sin, the double cure which, which cleanses from its guilt and power. Or like another hymn writer put it, the, the fountain where sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains till all the ransomed church of God are safe to sin no more. It's both the cleansing and the power. Water and blood made possible by the giving up or the giving over of His Spirit. But, but we're told that, that, that the piercing of His side and, and the seeing of that blood and water fulfills a Scripture too. This one from a book called Zechariah. Last time you read Zechariah? Not recently? Maybe? Reading through the book in a year, it's coming up. Maybe. This is from a book called Zechariah where it says, They will look on Him whom they have pierced. And the interesting thing there, if you go back and look at that passage, is that Zechariah is not talking about the sheep, but the shepherd. He's not talking about the lamb, but the giver of life. And not talking about just another servant, as much as he's talking about God himself. God is the one that has been pierced. God the Son, and through that, God the Father. You see, the place of death, Golgotha, becomes the place of life when the giver of life gave up his life to make life possible for you and me. And this side of the cross that, that hill called Calvary, which, which marked the end of life for thousands, has since marked the beginning of life everlasting for millions more. The circle's been broken. The balance is undone so that life and the meaning of life has been restored. Let me just draw this to a close by looking at the two men who bury Jesus. One is a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. We don't know much about him, but we're told that he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. And he's joined by someone we've met before, a man named Nicodemus who first came to Jesus in secret as well, under the cloak of darkness. We're told that even here. But now when Jesus hangs on a tree and blood and water flow and and he's given up or given over his spirit, now these two who had only associated with Jesus in secret make their allegiance known. Which doesn't really make sense. If you were waiting for the moment to come out of the closet, this is not really the one you would choose. He's dead. Why don't you just walk away? Why don't you just give up and go home? At least nobody knows about it. And yet this is the moment. This is the moment these two come out of the closet. It doesn't really make sense unless unless you saw what the cross really was. 
It's going to make for a pretty awkward Monday morning when Nicodemus shows up at work. Because the guys he's working with are the guys that put Jesus there. So to at this point now and go and help and get Jesus down, this is going to make for a pretty awkward moment Monday morning. But what does it matter? Why worry about your coworkers, no matter how much they hate Jesus, if you've seen that Jesus is your only hope? And their only hope too, right? Would you really settle for just going back to the perpetuation of the circle of life when that circle's been broken by Jesus? I wonder how many of us have yet to see this cross for what it is. I wonder beyond that how many of us have yet to see this cross like they did. See, a couple weeks ago, we looked at a woman who anointed Jesus for his burial with nearly a pound of perfume, a year's wages worth. That seemed pretty extravagant at the time. But now that the cross is in view, even these secret disciples anoint Jesus with a hundred times as much. This is a life's worth of wages. And I wonder if we've really seen Jesus. And I wonder if we've really seen this cross like they did, if we're not compelled to do the same. Every area of life, from our fear of man to our grip of what's mine and mine alone. Because in the cross, the place of death becomes the place of life. The work is finished. So when he's laid in a tomb, a place of death, how fitting is it that the tomb is in a garden, the place of life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the story's not done, and next week we get to see Jesus get up and walk out of that garden with more life than ever. But I pray today and I pray this week that that we would never lose sight of the hour that life was made possible. When the circle was broken and the balance was finally undone for the better. I pray that it would drive us out of the darkness, pull us out of the shadows, out of the secrecy of our following Jesus. And then beyond that, I pray that it would loosen our grip on all we have to find all we need in Jesus. Amen. In 1938, after the, the blockbuster hit Snow White, uh, Walt Disney bought a home for his parents. Sort of a dream of every kid, right? To buy your, your parents a home. Right in, right in the Hollywood area, Turns out there was an issue with the furnace, and he had guys from Disney go in to try and fix it, which they didn't do properly. And a month later, his mother died in that house because of the furnace. 
seems to be something that haunted Walt Disney all of his life. And maybe explains why so many Disney celebrations of life begin with death. Maybe not. No matter what it is that you carry with you, though, the only answer is to find the place of death transformed into a place of life in Jesus Christ. Pray you would know that now and this week forevermore. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible.org.